Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. So here is this quote from Ramdas's book, Being Ramdas, which, strangely enough, is exactly what I was planning to talk about today before I read these two wonderful paragraphs last night. Maharaji instructed us to, quote, bring your mind to one point and wait for grace, unquote. This time in Burma, meditating with Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, increased my concentration and one-pointedness. I felt like I was cheating because one-pointedness is the key to my devotional practice. What Maharaji said isn't Buddhist doctrine, but it works for me. The state of being I associated with Maharaji is my source of grace, unconditional love, and oneness. The language and concepts of Buddhism are different, but beyond language and concepts, beyond name and form, consciousness and love are the same. I can't picture the Buddha and Maharaji arguing. In retrospect, at every point in my sadhana, my spiritual practice, Maharaji has given me exactly the tools I need. Meditation quiets me and focuses my attention. Then, when I put my mind to Maharaji, 
The intense concentration opens the doorway to him, to his no form, to his unconditional love. The combination of Buddhist meditation and bhakti devotion is still my practice. Integrating Buddhist wisdom with the opening of the heart feels like a, a completion of both. And that's my practice too. Having a, a PhD in mathematics created a very, very, very busy mind in me. And I did need to spend several decades working very intensively with Buddhist practice to get my mind to this current state of not so much disrepair, but still a bit. And yet the core practice is essentially this surrender, this opening to God's grace. The title of what I wanted to talk about today before I read those two paragraphs is Two Kinds of Suffering Based on Two Kinds of Ego. So in Buddhism, there are really, they, they talk very clearly about two distinct kinds of suffering. And it's very useful to see the, the difference between them. The first is a self-centered attitude, a sense of psychological suffering the conditioning that comes from childhood, the places where we are neurotic. We get angry, we get narcissistic, we get greedy, all those kinds of feelings. The second kind of suffering, which is much more subtle, is a belief in a separate, concrete, permanent self, an I. So basically, we're talking about two kinds of ego. The first kind of suffering is based on a conventional understanding of psychological ego. And the second kind of suffering is based on this much more refined sense of ego that I'm a separate being. I think it was quite serendipitous that my dear friend Mason died just as we were beginning our group today. Mason had a brain tumor. He was dying very, very slowly over really the course of about a year. And in the beginning, there was a lot of psychological struggle. He didn't want to have uh, a body that was doing this. He was 23 years old. And as things progressed, a lot of these psychological issues about being frustrated that he couldn't do or be what he used to do or be were replaced by looking pretty directly just at fear of death itself. What is it like to not exist in the way I've been existing, till at the very end, he didn't want to even talk about anything. All he wanted to do was meditate. All he wanted to do was have me call up and either come over or via Skype or FaceTime because of COVID, guide him in a meditation where we'd go into the heart and dissolve into spaciousness. In the beginning of practice, these two kinds of ego, these two kinds of suffering are really intertwined in a way that it's very hard to distinguish them. But as practice deepens, as we begin to deal with some of the more obvious kinds of psychological suffering, the distinction between these two becomes apparent. And it's certainly possible for somebody to be a really evolved meditator and not have a lot of identification with separateness and still be a neurotic mess. And on the other hand, it's certainly, and I, I won't mention any names, and certainly on the other hand, it's possible for somebody to have gone through a lot of psychotherapy or had, had a really loving, supportive childhood and be really unneurotic and psychologically put together, 
but not have a lot of spiritual depth, still being identified with a place where they think they're separate. Compassion deals with the first kind of suffering. Compassion for the way other people are suffering, psychologically compassion for the way that you are suffering. And wisdom deals with the second kind of suffering. In Buddhism, wisdom is understanding the nature of consciousness, particularly the fact that there is no separate self, there is suffering in a fundamental sense, and there is impermanence. But in a more devotional sense, wisdom is understanding who we are, who is God, who is the guru. In India, guru, God, and self are the same. There is not like, I'm devoted to my external guru. That's a very preliminary stage of understanding that the guru is something out there to love and be devoted to. So we're going from conditioning to longing for love to being love itself. Saint Teresa of Lusso, the French Christian mystic said, I fear only one thing, that I should keep my own will. Maharaji said, serve me by always remembering God. Swami Nityananda said, be peaceful, I am everywhere. Maharaji said, I will never leave you. You may think you can get away from me. You may try to run away from me, but once I've got you, I'm never going to let go of you. That level of understanding devotion or bhakti or the guru is dealing with the second level of ego, the second level of suffering, that there really isn't separate I, that in, in, a, in the most fundamental sense, we are one being. Psychotherapy has the aim of making self as agent more efficient, but left intact. So once again, the, the aim of psychotherapy is to deal with that first kind of suffering. One of the main reasons I thought about talking about these things today was I was putting together the talk right after the Capitol riots. And it seemed to me that not only is what I'm talking about applicable to us as individuals, but even to us as a collective, to a country, to a society. Right now, we're even looking at fundamentally, who are we? What is the ununited states of America? Are we separate from each other? Are, are there red states and blue states? All this anger, all this fear, all this sadness. Uh, I've, got, I've got a client that I've seen every once a week, at least once a week for about a year now, who lives a few blocks from the Capitol building. And she's concerned about what's going to happen this coming week. Protesters walk by her house to get to the Capitol. What we're saying here is there's two levels of working with all that we're going through right now. The first level is there's psychological suffering. There are emotions coming up. There's anger, there's fear, there's sadness. Can we work with those emotions? Can we not get caught in the narrative, not get caught in the story? Can we be very directly with what it feels like in our bodies to be with the images that we see when uh, people are attacking the Capitol building? It's so easy this to get lost in the story. The, the story is so fascinating, compelling, interesting. And 
at the same time, as long as we stay at that level, healing is not going to be happening. We're strengthening the neural pathway, the conditioned response, that when we have a certain stimulus, we go into a certain emotion. Can we begin to create new neural pathways by having the same stimulus and letting that bring us more fully into awareness and from there going into compassion for what's going on? And then even the third stage of this deeper level of working with ego and suffering, of realizing that all of this drama, all of this story, is it's real and it's human, but there is a fundamental level of consciousness in which we are so much vaster, so much more connected than getting caught up in the story would seem to indicate. I could tell so many stories about being with gurus where all these crazy things were going on, and they kept saying, well, that's true, but you're forgetting God when you get lost in that. So once again, Suzuki Roshi said, the most important thing is finding the most important thing. What is the most important thing? What is the most important thing during this time of unrest, the most important thing for you? And the more people who are resting in the most important thing, who are investigating it, the more we will be creating some stability in our society. In some way, whenever an emotion arises, it's a healing process, even a difficult emotion. The emotion of fear, the emotion of anger, the emotion of hatred are trying to tell us something. Uh, I talked several months ago about this woman in the East Bay of uh, here in California, Carla Mc McLaren, is that her name? Carla McLaren, who uh, says that all emotions have a healing message. And in reality, that's exactly what Hindu and Buddhist Tantra is saying, that the stronger the emotion, the greater the opportunity for awakening. When we see uh, or think about or uh, feel the, the possible splitting apart of our country in some fundamental way, can those emotions inspire us to a deeper sense of oneness in ourself and maybe even a deeper commitment to compassionate action. First, we focus on thoughts, images, sensations, distinguish between them, and then can we go beyond the story to the feelings, the emotions themselves, working with the difficult emotions, become one-pointed, and then go back to that quote I read where Maharaji was saying to Ramnas, become one pointed in your mind and then surrender to God. So it's a very, very simple process, but yet a very challenging one. Can we become one pointed when the world is going crazy around us? Can we have enough concentration? Can we have enough mindfulness that we can let go of reactivity have compassion in a dualistic way and let this compassion then be the bridge or let this devotion be the bridge to surrender into the surrendering into the oneness. Be at least as interested in your reactions to things as the triggers that are causing you to react. We're so often caught in the triggers. 
the other part of this is that it's very difficult to go into the tantric level of seeing how people are trying to kill each other if we don't have some appreciation of the dark face of the divine. If we don't really appreciate that what's going on with people yelling and storming the capital is Shiva, is Kali, is Mahakala unfolding in their own own way. That can we love all of it? Can we go to that third stage of deeper surrender? That that more subtle level of ego being dissolved in oneness, even though all these things are happening in the world. I remember two different stories about Maharaji uh, in which a very close devotee of his had died. He was just told somebody had died. And in one case, he started crying. And in the other case, he started laughing. And somebody said, how can you laugh? Are you a butcher? And he said, do you want me to be a puppet like all the others? It's not that there is one particular emotional response. I don't know why he laughed when one person died and why he cried when the other person died. My response to Mason dying is a great sense of relief. He was really struggling with that body for so many months. And I I would like to formally dedicate any practices we do together and any wisdom that we accumulate to his peaceful passing into the next stage of his existence. So before we, we get into a discussion here, I'd like to do just a few minutes of the two-breath meditation. And you may remember the first breath is up-down, the second breath is in-out. So on the first breath, you just imagine that you're straightening your spine, that God is pulling you up by a little hook on top of your head. That's why Brahmins in India have a top knot of hair so that God can pull them up. And on the first out breath, you drop down into your belly, become centered. On your second in breath, breathe into your heart. Second out breath, breathe out into infinite spaciousness in all directions. So we'll do the two breaths for about a minute, and then I'll suggest let go of the first breath and just do the second breath of into the heart, out into spaciousness. So please begin by breathing in, letting your spine straighten and feeling that you're being drawn up from the top of your head. First out breath, dropping down into the depth of your lower belly, keeping strength there as you're breathing out. Second in-breath, breathing into your heart, love, devotion, compassion. Second out-breath, surrendering, letting go into spaciousness, boundlessly in all directions.
letting go of the first breath and just breathing into the heart, breathing out into spaciousness, opening to grace in each moment. And even though the bell has rung, can you continue to rest in that boundless spaciousness as we investigate ideas? Dedicating the merit of that, that practice with the wish that Mason might fly free with no obstacle. So as we go through these stages of working through levels of ego, the first step, mindfulness practice, giving up that wishing things are better. They're exactly the way they are. Can we be with things exactly the way they are without getting lost in the story? The second step then is giving up practicing for yourself realizing we're connected, feeling a deep sense of compassion for your suffering and the suffering of all beings. And the third step is giving up your identity. You are that which was invoked in the beginning. You are the deity. You are the guru. There's absolutely not two. Maharaj would always say, subek, just one, only one. It's a very good mantra, subek, only one. Maybe if I ask people to stay in that place of boundlessness, there's nothing to say. Certainly, if one has been the victim of trauma or abuse, this surrender, these progressive stages might go more slowly. One has to be careful in the beginning not to be overwhelmed by the triggers that are arising. At the same time, you started out by saying that you're having some success with your meditation. And for me, success is when my butt hits the cushion rather than what happens after it hits the cushion. And sometimes there's more thoughts and sometimes there's less thoughts. Sometimes I'm wishing I were watching Netflix instead of watching my mind. But I feel that it's all a success. It's all equally a success. In the beginning, if we're fixated on, I have to be with the content, 
that is a necessary stage in the beginning, that we do have to become one-pointed enough, develop enough concentration to begin to let the mind quiet down enough and stabilize enough that qualities of heart and then qualities later of oneness can begin to be revealed. We haven't talked very much in this group about concentration. Concentration is difficult to develop in short meditations. It's much easier to develop during longer retreats and things. And concentration is very distinct from mindfulness. Concentration is the ability to keep your mind on one thing at a time. Concentration does not uproot the causes of suffering. It temporarily suppresses them. Concentration does not lead to enlightenment, but it is a necessary precursor to mindfulness and compassion. Mindfulness is the ability to keep your mind, your attention in the moment with equanimity. In, in a sense, we're always in the present. If you're remembering the past or worried about the future, you're doing that in the present. There's nothing you can do but be mindful of the present. But mindfulness as a technical term is, it's not just paying attention, it's paying attention with a certain quality of presence and equanimity. First, we need enough concentration called, it's called access concentration to develop mindfulness. And then when we have enough mindfulness, then the heart begins to open. And then when the heart begins to open, this tantric stage of seeing that we can surrender into God, in fact, we are God, that God, Guru, and Self are one, is revealed. I would encourage people to do concentration practice at times. You might even try to say a mantra. And whenever a thought comes, just grabbing onto that mantra or watching your breath, you're counting the exhalations. And if you ever lose track, you have to start over again. See if you can get up to 100. Uh, Dale, I, I had a question. Um, when you were talking about Mason, um, I've, I've thought of him many times over the last few months. Um, and I'm glad he's been released. But um, my, my question was, when you were talking about um, and you've mentioned this before, how he always wanted to be uh, meditating, basically, when he was with you, and that was the only thing he wanted to do. And I, I wondered if, not, not referring to him exactly, but I just, can you clarify how that is not an escape from reality? So Sheila is talking about a process that is called spiritual bypassing. Are we, uh, are we using meditation to avoid reality and using it as a uh, distraction rather than as an investigation, if you will? And it is certainly possible to do that it boils down a lot to what is your motivation? Why are you meditating? Are you meditating because you don't want to feel your pain? Or are you meditating because you want to investigate why you're caught in your pain? And for Mason, who and 
when I was saying that all he wanted to do was meditate, that was really only the last few months. Uh, and he could barely talk during this time. So before then, we had long conversations about his frustration of being a 23-year-old man who could barely walk. He was very much interested in investigating these things when he was still competent to talk and have intellectual conversations. We'd sit in a, in a, a coffee house on San Anselmo Avenue, and Mason knew almost everybody, not everybody, but he knew a lot of the people that walked by on the sidewalk. Everybody said, hey, Mason, so nice to see you. He was, in spite of the fact that he was really disabled, he was just this radiant kid. He was just so, so, so lovely. So then toward more the end of his life, when he couldn't talk, all he wanted to do was go into that, that space of openness. I guide a lot of people who are dying. Uh, and the kind of the dark, dirty secret is that almost everything I say to dying people is the same thing I say to living people. Pay attention, open your heart, trust God, be kind to yourself. But there comes a certain point towards the end of life when instead of trying to concentrate, instead of trying to pay attention and focus, that if, if that is the instruction, it gets in the way. Then the instruction is to let go, to surrender, to just open, to let go of any sense of I'm a separate self. And Mason was gradually exploring that. All he wanted to do together with me is explore that letting go. And he had a lot of other friends and, and family members who he could talk to about all the other stuff. So to me, it didn't really feel at all like he was trying to avoid something. It felt to me like he really directly, nakedly wanted to get used to being nobody. Ram Dass's last book was called Becoming Nobody. And it's a great idea, but this becoming nobody is very challenging. The ego is not very fond of that idea. In fact, it is. It hates the idea. It's death to ego identification, right? And Mason wanted to explore that. It, to me, it didn't at all feel like that he was avoiding something. So you can, in your own practice, you can look at what does it feel like when I'm meditating because I'm trying to push away my pain and become a better person? And what does it feel like when I'm meditating because I want to know who I am? And there, there's a there's a, a contracted feeling, a, a sense of an I who has to change something in one case. And in the other case, there's a letting go into something that's much larger, that that's uh, supportive and comforting and has a feel of a feeling of love. Thank you. Yeah. Dale, hi, it's Susan. I, I just wanted to say thank you for evoking talking about Mason today, I think that for me and probably for, I, I hate, you know, just with um, just being with him in this journey, I, we, I feel his presence and it's deepened my opening of my heart and my being present. Um, and um in response to what Sheila was asking about escaping or spiritual avoidance versus um, 
opening oneself up, can you meditate to initially to for stress reduction and for well-being, but in the course of that meditation, reach a place of spaciousness that then is about ego uh, dissolution. Yes. To explore Susan's question a little bit more deeply, a lot of this has to do with motivation. Once again, you can stay at that beginning level of practice. And if, if, if your motivation for practice is that you just want to be a bit more efficient, if you just want to be a uh, uh, slightly higher functioning human being, you can use meditation to do that. But if your motivation is you want to get free, you still start out in the same place. And yet it keeps driving you forward. And in a way... Uh, that's what I really loved about Ram Dass's book because it started out talking about how really neurotic he was when he was younger and all all his things with being a homosexual at a time when uh, that could have ruined his career completely if he would have been uh, uncloseted and uh, then the psychedelics and then uh, Maharaji and then into service with prisoners and dying people. And at each step of the way, it was uncovering and purifying these places where he was caught in his own personality structure. So he had he had a very, very strong motivation, which may, you might say that was, was karmic. That's who he came into this life wanting to uh, become free. And somebody else could come into this life and just want to use meditation to find a better uh, quality of sexual partners or make a little more money or something. So that if you really want to get free, you will go through those things of giving up, wishing things to be better, being willing to be with things just the way they are, uh, learning to practice for everybody, not only yourself, and even giving up your own separate identity. Also in Ramdas's book, there's a few pages about what happened right before and right after he met Maharaji the first time, which was extremely well spoken and written and better than almost any place I've ever seen explains that quality of for the first time in your life feeling like you're you're home. That up until now life has been somewhere between a mystery and a mistake, and why am I here? Am I on the wrong planet at the wrong time? And getting the fact that, ah, this is what, this is why I'm here. And Maharaji had to use mind tricks to get around us to crack open. He had to sort of read his mind and tell him what he'd been thinking the, the night before. But at the same time, a lot of people can do those mind tricks. I've been with teachers who had all kinds of powers, but it was the combination of that and then the, the unconditional love that, that cracked him open like that. Okay, nobody has anything to John. Thank you, John. I do. Thank you so much. One thing I really appreciate about, appreciate about 
you is this is the psychological the relationship between the psychological and the spiritual work and um i think um sometimes and i i think i was definitely on this path of spiritual bypass until i couldn't really maintain that anymore um and had to kind of descend into my own psyche and do the psychological work and at the same time it there's a certain way i i think i experienced and i'm not sure this may be the stage that i'm at but where the psychological work and the spiritual work aren't that different in some ways for me that there's an edge there between my own psyche and my spiritual practice that is where they're interwoven and there's a shifting that can happen of kind of emphasis. Um, But there's a certain kind of, I think kind of what we would call depth psychological work where the boundary between psyche and spirit isn't that distinct. Right. In the beginning, it's quite distinct. And as, as we deepen, it turns out that, of course, then even the ego structure is not separate from God. It's all God. But in the beginning, it's something we identify with as, as a, a special thing. It's me as opposed to not me. It's possible to do this just as an as a investigation, as a psychological slash Buddhist investigation. But it's it, for me, for my personality, for a lot of people, it's so much easier if we bring in love and devotion. Uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, they feel that until you go into this tantric stage of love, realizing that you are that, then non-duality is very difficult to surrender into. And non-duality is of crucial importance because that's what Mason just surrendered into himself uh, about an hour ago, right? So really we're practicing dying in a very non-morbid way, moment to moment to moment. How much can we die into this next moment? Each time you breathe out, might it be the last out-breath? Are you dying with your out-breath? Each in-breath being reborn, letting yourself let go that fully with each breath. Obviously, we can't always do that. But it's much easier with a devoted heart, realizing like Swami Nityananda said, be peaceful, I am everywhere. Maharaji saying, I'm always in communion with you. In order to surrender into these more expansive states of consciousness, it's really uh, necessary to have a stable mind of relatively integrated personality structure if you're going to be doing this in an ongoing way. So that initially, we have to work with our conditioning. We have to work with the stuff we are identifying with. It's not it's not the case that we're trying to destroy or create, uh, destroy the ego or identify it as the enemy. We're just seeing it as another constellation of thoughts in the mind that we can pay attention to. A lot of these Eastern practices are assuming that you're already integrated enough, embodied enough, that you can just start asking, who am I, or surrendering into your oneness with God. 
and I found as a meditation teacher over the years that m many of us, including myself, when I tried to do this, uh, got in all kinds of trouble because I wasn't grounded. I wasn't in my body. I wasn't centered. I was still very caught in egoic patterning. So I'm trying to let go of who I am, but I don't even like who I am. And that doesn't work. One of my friends who was a Buddhist psychotherapist said, you have to become somebody before you can become nobody. So can we have a, a, a healthy enough functioning ego that the mind can settle down without feeling all anxious and agitated and, and concerned about everything that's going on? begin to concentrate on the breath or on the qualities of your heart and particularly be embodied. Can you inhabit the lower chakras? I mean, we could have this whole conversation about the awakening of the chakras and you can't really expect to stay in the higher chakras, the, the devotion of the heart, the, the truth of the throat, the wisdom of the mind until you inhabit the first, second and third chakras becoming grounded, centered, comfortable, comfortable, stable, being in a body, having an ego, being a human being on this earth before we start letting go of identification with that and identifying with higher quote-unquote uh, levels of consciousness. So for me, it's been going back and forth. And I think that's, that's a, a common experience in the West these days that you start meditating and you have these wonderful experiences, but you can't maintain them. And you notice that the mind is out of control. So you go back and you get body work and you go into psychotherapy and you, you, you take a martial art or something like that and eventually end up beginning to stabilize the lower part of the energy body. And then you go back and open up again. And then you, you uncover some other things that you didn't deal with down below. So it's like, it's like a dance. It's like painting a painting or dancing or something where it's not this linear process. It's admitting where you're caught and being with that and then surrendering into wholeness.